I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. And as always on Close Reads, I am joined by two people who also stand about looking distinguished and as martyrs for the arts. How's it going? <laughs> Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. That's the best introduction I've ever gotten. Well, maybe we should say that Tim stands around looking distinguished and Angelina looks like a martyr for the arts, or maybe it's vice versa. I don't know. <laughs> I think, no, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know which of us gets which. <laughs> I want to be the martyr. I want to be the martyr. The martyr. I would okay. like to be the martyr, but I would still not to like to lose my fashion sense. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something that uh, what's his name would say from the book. Sebastian. No. Oh, no, the other one, Anthony. Oh, Anthony <laughs> Blanche. Yeah. You're gonna have to own Anthony that statement Blanche. a little more, Tim. You're gonna have to put some pizzazz yeah. behind the statement if you want Anthony to sell it. I would love to be a martyr. So I don't want to lose my fashion sense. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Speaking of being distinguished, as you were sitting here talking, I just like took a sip of Dr. Pepper and just spilled it all over myself. <laughs> You're welcome very much. <laughs> oh, keeping it classy as yep, always. Yep, classy on close reads. That should be our new hashtag. We and need to get t-shirts say- to say classy on close reads. Yes, but also you can't say Dr. Pepper on the air. They're not a sponsor. You have to say generic soda. I was drinking a generic soda. Have you, have you guys ever seen that um, comedian that went on like Conan or something, the British guy? And he goes on there and he's like, I love Dr. Pepper. I drink it every night. I have no idea what it is. I mean, it is definitely not natural flavor, whatever they say. I've never eaten a bite of fruit and been like, that tastes like Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but he's so true. I don't know it's what Dr. Pepper is. It's sweetened with prune juice. It's sweetened with That's prune juice. That's what I've heard. I've heard it's prune juice. That's, That's what I've heard, too. agent. Huh. Well, I learned something Tim new on Close Reads. the person who's, like, you know, tutting that comedian. I dare say, good man, it's actually prune. It actually well, is natural. <laughs> he actually, he also goes on and talks about, um, uh, oh, what is it, apricots, apricots, whatever. And, uh, okay, there's another one for you. Do you say apricots or apricots? I say apricots. What? Tim, what do you say? Outright apricot. <laughs> All right, well, you're about voted on this as far as people on the you show. You say in apricots, David? Uh, yeah, I just did. <laughs> well, you said both. You said apricots or apricots. Yeah, but like, my, at least I said apricots, and then I was like, I don't know what it is. Tim doesn't even I get talk a professionally. Got no idea. State. You're from the peach state. You know nothing about apricots. He probably I, calls I, peaches um, peaches. For peaches, okay. Angelina, it's actually the peach state. <laughs> the the peach state. I defer to you on issues, all things related to peaches. I will, <laughs> without question. Although you know, you say, walnut or walnut. <laughs> now we're being absurd. I say pecan or pecan. pecan. <laughs> I will cut a person who says pecan. I'm putting it right so, here on the air. Speaking of, the I peach- will cut a person. Sorry, David. <laughs> I, I will cut a person for mispronouncing the name of a nut that I adore. I'll she probably hates them. them. She probably just can't even stand no, pecans. I grew up with those trees 
lifelong ritual of going out and picking pecans and pecan season and yeah. Tim, do you say pecan, pecan? I say pecan. Pecan, yeah. Oh, thank goodness. We can yeah. have peace now. Yes. <laughs> they taunt. Otherwise, I was bringing my knife to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have an exacto knife in your purse. And right when I least expe- expected it. We're going to need a freaking metal detector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't stay. Yeah, Hamlet. Don't stand behind any curtains. I might just <laughs> start stabbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Angelina, you do strike me as someone who, if you were a little suspicious of what was behind a curtain, you might just start stabbing anyway. So, um, I feel like that's a very good go-to first response. Yeah. Say, hey Tim, I, I learned something new about peaches, and this is going to ruffle some peach date feathers. Did you know that in the last couple of years, South Carolina and Massachusetts are beginning to rival peach production of Georgia? David, I thought that South Carolina had already passed us in peach production. That may be well, the case. Massachusetts, why they had though, that giant peach water tower in South Carolina. I didn't know what that was about when yeah, I passed. Yeah, the peach it. butt. We, yeah. <laughs> we <had to laughs> people who live in South Carolina are going to get it. Yeah. No, if you live, if you don't live around here, you've never seen the South Carolina peach water tower. Just Google it, and you'll get. I why have people, seen yeah, it now. Uh, yep. It was quite a shock. I thought I was in Georgia. Yep. It's in the, it's in, uh, it's just over the border, not, or not too far from the North Carolina yeah. border. I can't remember right, which yeah. town it's in, yeah. but, but yeah. So anyway. I think whenever I see that thing, I don't know whether to react as if it's a behemoth or if it's kind of a work of art made from an industrial, uh, what would you call it? Well, hold on. What's the difference between monolith? these two things? No, I hear what you're saying, Tim, because I have this weird fascination with uh, American kind of, you know, oh, I'm drawing a blank of what the word Ingenuity. was. No, but you know, there's a certain, t- uh, I cannot believe I had the word on the tip of, t- tip of my tongue, but I've it's, lost it. But- an attempt to kind of like make art out of industrial grotesques. Nope. <laughs> 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 I'm so trying the word it's going to come to me after this show this yeah, is very or it comes annoying. to you in the middle of a different conversation of course before oh. we switch over to the story though the, the book i, I got i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna have a tim moment and i'm gonna tell a, a story that's not related to this conversation but is related to this conversation <laughs> because i thought about it when we were joking about things standing behind curtains and being all hamlet like uh i just feel like these are the kinds of things that happen when you live in a literary family so my daughter who's 18 bought a basil plant and put it on her windowsill with the window open and then and then forgot that the plant was there and was behind a curtain. She named this basil plant Polonius and <laughs> oh then forgot God. it was there and she hit the curtain and it fell out of the window and Oh it, and my um, goodness, that is so <laughs> I could not stop laughing about that. Like you killed Polonius Names the Names matter, people. <laughs> Matter. matter. That poor plant never had a chance. You cannot put a plant named Polonius on a windowsill. That's just some good life advice for you folks. I what learned this. I, I'm kind of. I, I think that um, it sounds like the basil plant might have died from neglect if she had not like kind of capsized it out the window. <laughs> that was courteous of her. Because I think everyone would rather die. By being pushed out a window than by just neglect. <laughs> <laughs> this all 
also goes to the importance of reading Shakespeare to your children when you think they don't understand it. Because I cried. I laughed so hard. And she said, I don't get it. I said, but it's named Polonius. And she's like, but I don't get it. I said, from Hamlet. She said, babe, I totally didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> she didn't do it on purpose? Wait, Isabella, so you just, you're just like, I'm going to name this basil plant. Let me think of a name. And you came up with Polonius, and you didn't remember it was in Hamlet. She's like, I swear, I did not. It wasn't on purpose. So the fact that it was accidental is even better. <laughs> poor this is a sign. Names matter, man. Bella, this is a sign that Bella is operating at this, like, highly intuitive, artistic level of genius, right? That's the no, only explanation. Totally. She named it Polonius not knowing what it was. That's what that's what it is. She was operating at a super intuitive level. Brilliant. But the problem is she she, obviously- she cursed the plant by naming it that. She does obviously have some kind of deep, deep connection to Hamlet that she doesn't know. Because another time we were shopping at Halloween and there were all these skulls and she picked one up and she struck this perfect Hamlet pose. And she raised up the skull with one hand and said, some Shakespeare quote. Oh, no, that's so great. That's so funny. She didn't say the last four York. She said some Shakespeare quote. I love it. This is how my children cope with having a literary mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, this is the thing, though. Names do matter. And I learned this after we named our first child because we named him Coulter, C-O-U-L-T-E-R. If you, you know, just like just after the Wendell Berry character, after the whole Coulter family, right? And the thing is, that name really comes from the word, like, that means young horse. And it has turned out to be exactly true that he is you know we just we doomed him to become a young wild horse (laughs) and we have we are we are reaping what we sowed (laughs) really really um he i'm just he kicks a lot there's a lot of kicking and bucking yeah so your other son is just going to be standing on the street corner predicting doom for civilization (laughs) definitely no we said this last night that jeremiah is exactly what someone who's named jeremiah should be like (laughs) really oh yeah um he's maybe a little more stylish than the but the prophet though um anyway we are here we are here to talk about Brad's Head Revisited, part two, chapter one, or part three, chapter one, depending on which edition you have. But of course, before we do that, we do need to say a quick word from our friends over at the Scola Academy, uh, which is from Classical Academic Press. Uh, if you have a ninth or a twelfth grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar-style grade books course while earning two high school credits, then the class with through Scola that our very own Tim McIntosh is offering uh, might be just the perfect fit for you. In fact, Tim, you're offering four classes for four high classes, schoolers. David. Could you tell us what, what the topics of those four classes are going to be? David, I'd be happy to. I thought you might. Ancient, ancient Greek and Roman literature and history. That's the first class. Second class is medieval and Renaissance history and literature. British and American history and literature and world history and literature. And all of it is available. I think I'm st- like the the on the front page of scoleacademy.com. And scole is S-C-H-O-L-E, scoleacademy.com. And if you have heard us do these ad reads for the last two months and have not signed up your child for one of these courses, then I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't possibly be our 
terrible advertising skills. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't possibly be. I mean, Tim's enthusiasm about the courses. Tim, you're enthusiastic about these courses, right? Oh, I, can't, I seriously can't wait for yeah, them to start. I, I mean, that's it, not a joke. Yeah. Well, I didn't expect. I didn't think it was a joke. I didn't really think of you <laughs> as someone who has a sense of humor. So. Um, <laughs> I had it surgically removed. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds painful. Um, but anyway, so speaking of people who sense of humor, you had it removed when you got the Hamlet role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hamlet's hilarious! No, I could never have gotten it removed for the Hamlet role. Hamlet's hilarious. Teasing you. All right, well, David's definitely speaking, trying to get this back on track. Speaking for of people who don't often display a sense of humor, we should probably talk about Charles Ryder and company. Nicely um, done. Shakespeare, we got a Lear. We got a couple of Lear references. Ooh, we sure this, did. Indeed, we did. So we're here. This is this is um, this is as I said, chapter one of part two. If you're reading the original version, and I believe that in the new. <laughs> the new American Standard version. It's uh, <laughs> chapter one of part three, and I, I don't have that in front of me, but I think that's what it is. I, I feel like on the Facebook page, we started a bit of a like King James version only kind of controversy with regards to these editions. <laughs> oh, really? Which really? one's authoritative? Which one's definitive? It is. I don't. That, who cares? Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> So um, in this chapter, we we venture across the ocean, and there is a storm of many in many different sorts of ways. So let's talk about that those storms and 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 that journey. Um, I, I, what I'm thinking I want to do after this is for the next episode, let's do the next two chapters because they're relatively short, and then okay. that would give us a chance to do our live recording. Um, of the last two chapters of the book. So when we're actually oh, all together at the show, we can finish our discussion of Brad's head um, when we're at the conference. And then when we get back, we can do the Q and a episode. So that's a great idea for the episode that's going to record this Friday and then run a week from, t- well, we're recording on a Monday. We're recording late. So today's July 10th. So the episode for those of you who are listening, that's going to air July 17th. We will do chapters two and three of part two, and then we'll finish the book on the episode that's going to air on the 24th or so. And that will be the one that we recorded live on Thursday evening at the conference. So does that, does that work for the two of you? I love that idea. I think so. Okay. I do want to know, David, how are we going to be sitting? I mean, I'm going to be a little bit wigged out to not just be sitting by myself with my laptop. Oh, no, you're going to have to have pants on and not just your robe. I I assumed that you would be in another room in the hotel, and Angelina and my dad and I will be on the stage at a table, and you would still get to have your own room. That sounds great. (laughs) No, we'll get a table. You have people interrupting you like the students in the hall at Gutenberg, just so you feel normal. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that sounds great. And we can have my daughter knocking on the door, motioning me, hurry up in this so that I can feel like I'm at home. Yeah, yeah, we w- yeah exactly. We will. We'll, we'll sit at a table. I, that's a great question. I don't know. We'll have to have him just sitting in the audience sending us text messages. Yeah, probably so. No, no. He's just going to run up and interrupt it or cover his ears and cry like he's bleeding from the sound of my voice or something. <laughs> Maybe he'll be in Dallas and he'll be talking yeah, about exactly hearing Angelina. Um, anyway, so let's talk of these chapters. We've, I mean, we've got that business out of the way and whatever else <laughs> nonsense we've been talking about. Um, it, it, the chapter begins with a really interesting sort of almost 
I don't know what the word is for. I'm trying to think of the word, but it's like a interstitial almost before he gets into it. And he has this sort of mm. thing about like memory and stuff like that. He says, in fact, my theme is memory. That winged host soared about me one gray morning of wartime. Um, and this, it gives it this, I felt this um, sort of ancient, epic yeah. poem vibe going on here right yeah the way it's almost oh, like yeah. very lyrical it, yeah and there's something about there's like a muse right yeah. it's almost like he's he's not directly calling it it's like it's like a 20th century version of calling out to the muses or referencing the muses or something like the beginning of the iliad and the Aeneid or whatever yeah um, yeah and then he gives us this interstitial uh, well what i'm calling it interstitial because it obviously does lead into the um it's not set apart it's still part of the chapter but he he gives us this sort of description of how, how he sees memory and i thought we should go ahead and, sh- and start by reading that paragraph mm-hmm. so tim if you could do it give us your best charles Ryder and read um first the two first, paragraphs in 225 let's, yeah let's go with the first two paragraphs and then the one that the, the last one to the bridges over to 226 okay my theme is memory that winged host that soared about me one gray morning of wartime These mornings, which are my life, for we possess nothing certain except the past, were always with me. Like the pigeons of St. Mark's, they were everywhere under my feet, singly, singly, in pairs, in a little honey-voiced congregations, nodding, strutting, winking, rolling the tender feathers of their necks, perching sometimes, if I stood still on my shoulder, or pecking a broken biscuit from between my lips, until, suddenly... The noon gun boomed, and in a moment, with a flutter and sweep of wings, the pavement was bare, and the whole sky was dark with the tumult of fowl. Thus, it was that morning. And then skipping a paragraph. The human soul enjoys these rare classical Actually, don't skip it. Read that. Sorry. Sorry. I, I confused you. These memories are the memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. These hours of... A flatus in the human spirit, the springs of art are, in their mystery, akin to the epochs of history, when a race for centuries has lived content, unknown, behind its own frontiers, digging, eating, sleeping, begetting, doing what was requisite for survival and nothing else, will, for a generation or two, stupefy the world, commit all manner of crimes, perhaps, follow the wildest Shimmeras? Is that Shimmeras, you guys? I always yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. Follow the wildest Shimmeras. Go down in the end in agony, but leave behind a record of new heights scaled and new rewards won for all mankind. The vision fades, the soul sickens, and the routine of survival starts again. Keep going, David. Yeah, yeah. The human soul enjoys these rare classic periods, but. Apart from them, we are seldom single or unique. We keep company in this world with a horde of abstractions and reflections and counterfeits of ourselves. The sensual man, the economic man, the man of reason, the beast, the machine, and the sleepwalker, and heaven knows what's besides, all in our own eye, indistinguishable from ourselves to the outward eye. We get born along, out of sight in the press, unresisting, till we get the chance to drop behind unnoticed or to dodge down a side street, pause, breathe freely, 
and take our bearings or to push ahead, outdistance our shadows, lead them a dance, so that when at length they catch up to us, they look at one they look at one another askance, knowing we have a secret we shall never share. And then he he launches into some a reflection on sort of a, the last ten years of his life before mm-hmm. the sort of primary drama of the chapter. <clears throat> These memories are the memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. And and by the way, the, a flattest that word that I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it or whatever, but it means essentially the a divine creative impulse or inspiration. Huh. So ah, the hours he of, brings that up again later in the chapter, yeah, right? That he, yeah, didn't, he he lost his inspiration when he left Brideshead. Yep, he does, like on two twenty seven. Um, so basically, you could read as these hours of divine inspiration in the human spirit. The springs of art are akin to the epochs of history. Um. And then he goes on and on. That what the, what do you guys? What is the place of this passage here? Like, why does I, I'm really interested in the, in the why in the decisions that. Wa makes in the midst of the narrative where he drops these passages that are highly philosophical, very lyrical in a sense, um, mm-hmm. classical in a way, um, like very, very formal and kind of formalistic yeah. even. Yeah. Um, why does he do that? And what effect does that have on this chapter? And one of the things I was thinking about is how in some ways this is a book in which very little real action happens, right? Mm-hmm. And much of it happens yeah. off screen, but this is, so to speak, but this is the chapter where something actually happens, which is really interesting. Um, and, and it happens much later and kind of as a, it's almost like we have a new narrative going on now. Um, Sebastian's completely gone. Um, yep. so, so what is the, what is the Lady place? Lady Marchmate too. Yeah, she's gone. Yep. Yep. Um, and when it starts, Julia's not there either. You know, we get this new wife character. Uh, Celia, but what what is the place of this passage here? Um, would would you say? What's the purpose of it? Well, my first thought was that he was reminding us again that this story is being told um, in retrospect, right? And he just, I'm just, I'm so fascinated with this book structurally. Now we get the story of the story he told us a few chapters earlier, right? About right about Rex and, and right. Julia. N- nothing is unfolding chronologically, which of course is very true to how memory works. This memory yeah. is very episodic. Something happens. There's a smell or a sound, and you're, you know you remember bits and pieces. Um, but I like your idea that it's the muse. I hadn't thought about that, but that certainly fits in with the theme of the divine inspiration that goes through the beginning of the chapter when he's talking about what's missing in his art. Yeah. Um, especially because the muses are the daughter of memory. I'm going to be talking about that. Mm. In oh, hmm. it's yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I'm going to be bringing up, the idea that all stories is, mm. a, is are memories. At least mm. that's the classical and medieval idea, right? That Not that I have invented this story, but that I am passing down to you a memory of something. That, that was the role of stories, that culturally we have to, we have to remember things. I remember when we talked about Jaber Crow, how often Wendell Berry said the rememberers are lost. Mm. Um, you know, and that's all connected to the stories. It's interesting that you mentioned that sometimes you don't know where, like, it, something, you're, you never know why your memories are going to get brought up. And you didn't put it that way, but you said something to that effect, I think. And mm-hmm. isn't that sort of how it happened at the beginning of the book, right? Like, he's in the army, and he doesn't, yes. even, he doesn't even realize where he is. But then something kind of jars his memory, and out of nowhere come these reflections. And, and like, it doesn't always, it's not going to happen in this, like, perfect narrative arc, the way we remember things. Right. And it came out as an emotion first. He cried. Hmm. 
And then, hmm. then he remembered. So, like, something deep in him remembered and responded with tears before he yeah. was able to even put the thoughts to it, which is also very, very true. Another motif that has run through is how many times has he said, I never expected to see them again. I never expected to go back to Brideshead again. You know, over and over. And this is so true to life, too, right? We think an episode is over. These people are not in our lives. This, this is done. And then come, they come back again hmm. <laughs> over and over. That's the third paragraph. These memories are memorials and pledges of the vital hours of a lifetime. These hours of a flautus in the human spirit, the springs of art are in their mystery, akin to the epochs of history when a race which for centuries has lived content unknown behind its own frontiers, digging, eating, sleeping, begetting, doing what was requisite for survival and nothing else. That That is... That's Charles before he met Sebastian. And it's Charles mm-hmm. after he leaves Brideshead. I mean, he, we kind of find out in this chapter, nothing has happened in his life. Well, except he got married, but he doesn't care about this. Um, except that he's become a pretty decorated artist, but he doesn't seem to care about this either. He keeps going back to those moments that, for him, we're kind of like stepping outside of the kind of like safe borders of himself. In fact, uh, the way that those were introduced into the narrative was very interesting, right? Because we think of that as the milestones of a person's life. And this is yeah. the story of Charles's life. But, and just like we saw that with Lady Marchmain's death, all the things that should be these significant milestones, are they just their afterthoughts. It's, oh, and of course, my wife was there. And, and you're like, when did, when did this happen? And what are the circumstances of that? And oh, you have two children. Uh, and and you you know again professionally and personally all the things that you think of as a as a milestone are just not the focus here yeah. at all they're very much afterthoughts. I also just want to point out that what you just read is basically a lore, a huge epic simile. That whole paragraph is one big yeah. epic simile. Yeah. Say more about that, Angelina. I don't know that I follow you. It's an epic simile. Right. I mean. A memory is like a civilization that, and then he goes and just talks and talks about oh. the epochs of history and the way civilizations rise and fall in mankind, and that's what a memory is like. And of yeah. course, epic similes, going back to the idea of it being classical and kind of formal, yes. the epic yes. simile being something that is representative of mm. Homer. That is and, not something you see in modern literature, right? It's all these short sentences. Yes. Um, and it's funny that he... Sorry, now I'm going to nerd out on the construction of the second <laughs> sentence of the third paragraph. Go for so, it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're yeah. going to do a close read? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do a close read. We're Which is not the same hold thing the as phone, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read it one time because it's Tim so gorgeous. It Carry on. So These hours of a flawless. We got to figure out before the end of the show how to pronounce that I'm word. I'm going to look it up right now. Okay. Yeah, that's what I do. Go ahead. These hours of afflatus in the human spirit, the springs of art are, oh, darn, never mind. My whole theory was kind of just shot down by that one single being verb, are. I was about to say he holds off the entire, he holds off the primary verb of the sentence until the second to last word. Stu- or third to last word, stupefy the world, stupefy. Yeah, so he says are akin, which is saying yeah. are like. So that's the epic simile. This yeah, yeah, is yeah. like that. But he kind of hides it a little bit. 
that's, that's you know, you, well, you know way more about modern literature than I do, but in my experience, you don't run across long sentences like, I mean, in a stream of consciousness kind of way you do, but not... Faulkner not and so this, forth. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even um, James Joyce. Yeah. But we've, not... We've talked about this before, I think. Shakespeare does that. He, it, it's not always an epic simile, but Shakespeare will reserve, he will hold off the verb until almost the very end of a long description. So it's like Latin. Yeah, right. And he was trained in Latin. It would make sense of that kind of construction. And why is he doing that, do you think? Is it just a matter of form or what else is going on there? I think he typically does it when he is describing an event that has happened. So it's kind of similar to what Waugh is doing. When he's describing an event that has happened and it's basically it's basically explication but by reserving the verb by holding the verb off until the very end it creates a sense of drama to the listener or to the reader like i i almost want to look up the opening monologue from the king in hamlet from claudius because one of his opening monologues when he's describing what has happened between he and his former sister-in-law and now wife, his relationship to Hamlet. It's this long, absolutely gorgeous monologue, but it's just all description of what's happened in the past, but the verb is buried at the very, very end. And as a listener, you're waiting for that verb. You kind of need that verb to show up. And so you kind of lean forward into what was otherwise kind of boring explication. Or it could be boring explication. I think it just creates a sense of kind of like tension and drama. Hmm. Hey, hey, Tim, since you finished that sentence there, I just want to do a quick plug. Graham reminded me we should do a quick plug for another of your classes. Oh, what's that? Yeah, it's uh, this is Tim McIntosh's Sweating Through the Classics course. Uh-huh. The, this, <laughs> the intensive includes Aeneid Aerobics spinning with Sophocles and Cicero cardio. Uh, He did want me to make sure that, you know, this is not fine print, but he, it's a BYO towel. Um, You know, basically, you know, because Tim has to hoard all, all the towels there. Right. You know, right. For obvious, for obvious reasons. Problem. Because of the sweat gland problem. That is me. There are actual tears in my eyes right now. And I just want to, Graham says, Graham, just the little, you know, little administrative reminder. He wants people to know that payments for the class can be made out to him and that he will make sure that Tim gets all the checks. So, um, so again, that's Tim sweating through the classics with Tim McIntosh. Yep. It includes Aeneid aerobics, spinning with Sophocles and Cicero cardio. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Sign up now. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you remembered that you were doing that, but he he was right in making sure that we reminded you of that. Good for him. Yeah, he's very on top of things like that, especially in the middle of close reads. Um, This is what happens when he's unsupervised from you for an hour. (laughs) I'm not not sure he's going to appreciate the way you said that. Um, Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about Charles' uh, life. Post Brideshead, um, after he kind of leaves and thinks the inspiration is gone, he he goes on his adventures. He gets married. Um, he has children, one of which he's never met, um, and he goes off on his his 
artistic adventures, which in some ways his wife oh, seems man, to support. Oh, you're talking? Is this like a reverse odyssey? <laughs> well, you know, Ooh. that's a great question. Because I was going to say, there's, it feels like a reversal of so many different things. And yet at the same time, it feels like bad habits being played back again. Like it seems like a reversal of some of the expectations we would have in terms of the form of a lot of stories like the odyssey and then the other on the other hand it feels like he's pursuing um bad habits like the, like he's just kind of reliving the things that his dad did to him in a sense that's it man i that thought crossed my mind also i was like boy he's just he's his dad what his dad was to him he's being that to his wife and kid i mean he hasn't mm-hmm. seen his you know john john his son john john for two years or something and he's never met yeah. his, his little girl um which Who's is named after him significantly it, indeed yeah and it's one of those things where i think that because we're reading in the story it's easy to kind of gloss over over that but that's a it, that's such a there's if you really stop and think about what that would mean for everybody involved and what it would take of a person to to behave in that way it changes the way you think about the pathos of the story and the character in a lot of ways i think like it's the first time for me anyway where charles loses a sense of sympathy or like you really judge him yes. for his behavior yes, and this is why this was so interesting to me wall withheld the information about his wife's infidelity oh right. yeah yep that okay. was a little bit of so, genius right ahead, so so well so what could have been a very sympathetic portrayal of his leaving of home and his, you know, meeting up with Julia and starting something there. It, you know, he could have told that very differently. Instead, he yes. would that information. So we are judging him. We are thinking all kinds of things. We might even be thinking poor Celia, faithful mm-hmm. Penelope, waiting for her man to come home. And mm-hmm. then you find out, boom, she's not faithful Penelope. Yeah. That, I just kept thinking, I can't believe you saved that. You saved that final piece of information. And it's so one of the things that I loved about that is that. You get this line from Celia. I've been trying to find it, David. Yep. I'm sure we're talking about the same line. So she's been sick, right? And it's towards the end of the chapter. She's been sick, and it's after he's been spending time with Julia, and he's now back in in his room, in his quarters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she's been sick. She's been, you know, uh, just in bed. And at one point, she says to him, you know, he's like, how are you doing and all that? And she says, oh, I've been a terrible wife to you or something i've been a bad wife to you and really she's just saying oh i've been laid up in bed but then that's got that double meaning this whole chapter has so many different double meanings like that yes yes i can't i can't find it even calling into question whether or not caroline is his child right yeah where is that though because there's that line where he's like i seem to recall something vaguely in a letter from her that she was with child right before I left. I mean, it's just, that's just, it's suspicious, right? That she has a yeah. baby while he's gone for two years. Right. Yeah. Right. And then she goes out of her way to name it after him, name her, the child after him. Mm. Yeah. Almost as if like a, it's a way of saying, sorry, yeah. or, or, or at least it's, making it appear that, making you know, it like, this is definitely your child. Definitely yours, named yeah. after you. Yeah. And did you, did you guys take, so we're trying to kind of like tease out the, how these memories fit together for Charles. I, I got a little glimpse that his wife had had an affair. Cause there's one line where they, yeah, kind of right. Just where he's like, touch oh, on it, but don't like say everything it. from last time. 
Yes, last time, about that? Last yeah. time or something That's like that. what I thought too. I thought, oh no, there's been something. Something happened. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, did the affair prompt him to leave for such a long time and grow disinterested? I think that you can really read it that way. Exactly. You could also read it the other way. Like could, he's disinterested and But it's the way she says he says everything from last time and she's like, Oh, that's that that doesn't mean anything. It never meant anything. It's all over now. You know? Yeah. So there was definitely, you know, yeah, there was an affair and before he left. He, he he knew about it, which, you know, I don't get the feeling that he was ever Mr. Really into this marriage for anything other than pragmatic reasons. Right. Well, she asks him and he's, you know, he says physical yes. attraction is part of it. And then so, his wife also asked him to get married. I mean, she was the one. That's pretty telling as well. Yeah. Turn to page 231 because there's a lot about their relationship you can tell from one conversation. And that's like that's the thing about Wah, or just any great writer, but Wah in particular. Uh, the way he can reveal so much about, a few, about two characters in a few lines of dialogue. And, mm. the, and just end about a relationship. Um, it seems like an obvious thing to say but it's so hard to execute. Um, It's where it says we lay in our twin beds. Um, I'll be the narrator. And then Tim, you be Charles and Angelina, you be Celia. Right. Um, We lay in our twin beds, our yard or two distant smoking, which here's, this is where the, sorry to pause, but Tim, this goes back to the thing that you and I always talk about, right? The, the idea of like how you'd stage something or, or, I, I love the visual of it. Like, you got them in their two beds and there's the distance, there's the distance between mm-hmm. them, but there's also mm-hmm. the smoke. And yeah. Like he says smoking and like, it might, it seems kind of like an offhand thing, but at the same time, the smoking and the, the smoke that's going to be in the air and, and all of the, all of the moodiness that that could create. And you're on a ship and all that kind of stuff. Although they might not be Honestly, on a ship yet. That, that little short sentence said everything I needed to know about their marriage. Mm-hmm. They've been separated for two years. <laughs> Yes. They reunite and they're sitting in their twin beds. Do you want to sleep? Nah. Okay, we'll just stay up and smoke. I know. Yeah, at and this point, they're not even talking. They're just smoking. I know. The, the thing, I mean, this is two years having not seen each other. This is the night for connubial bliss. As that's right. what, that's makes what, that reference. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. That older lady makes that reference. And, like, like, you know, in the movies, smoking after is sort of like kind of like the pattern. They just cut uh, right yeah, to smoking. Uh, yeah, especially in the, um, you know, you see that in like crime movies and noir movies and stuff like that. Right, right. Well, he yeah. sets it up that she starts undressing in front of him. But then the scene just does yeah. not go so where do you, you think it's going to go. Do you think that then what what he's doing there is you from just from like in terms of how he interacts with the reader it obviously creates all this everything we need to know about the characters and it's setting up drama but it's also setting up something that like he sets up expectations for the reader and then it doesn't happen and so uh-huh. then when it happens with julia i mean it's obviously all off stage but then when that happens with julia it like fulfills the expectations of the reader so then there's that there's that through line of drama that he sets up early in the chapter that doesn't get resolved for a long long time and this is a long yeah. chapter yeah. And he doesn't tell us why there's this distance between mm-hmm. them. You know, he he waits that it's very slow in unfolding. Which leads you to to create your own judgments of the characters instead of him yes. telling you how to feel about the characters. Cuz like mm-hmm. you said, if we'd known what had happened with them previously that she'd been unfaithful to him previously, then you'd think it would be like, "Oh, that makes sense." But because he doesn't yes. tell us that, we're left 
with this sense of conflict and as there's this dissonance as for us as the readers. Well, you really think he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He does not come off well in this chapter. No, no, he does not. For, and for the first time, that's why I said for the first time in the book, I mean, we judge him throughout. He hasn't been, a, you know, a, you know, perfect specimen to the whole, the whole book, but we haven't looked at him as like the bad guy in a sense. Like it's either been Sebastian or somebody else that's kind of been the one who we really judge for their behavior. You know, what's interesting to me about this chapter, Charles seems for the first time that he moves out of the position of being the narrator and he moves into the position of being a character. Hmm. He he seems like there's, he is more active. There's more action on his part. Yes. Yes. And I don't know why, but it, it seems like everything in the previous two sections comes through him. But he doesn't, he, I don't know, this is a hard thing that I'm trying to articulate, because I'm not even really sure exactly that I agree with what I'm saying. But in the first two sections, he, everything comes through Charles. In this section, he is also kind of narrating his own last 10 years. And it doesn't seem like he really narrates himself as much in the previous two sections as he does in this one chapter. Hmm. I wonder if, I wonder if it's because it's, you know, you could think of it's fresher. It's, you know, it's 10 years more recent than the, than the earlier stuff. The memories well, are closer. You know, but it's also yeah. interesting that we don't see a whole lot of Charles's thoughts here. He is reporting what she said and what I said, right? But where you would expect the narrator who's about to tell you about his infidelity, you would expect him to write to be giving you justifications and excuses and trying to spin some sympathy or at least to be like, in my head, I wondered if this was the right thing to do. But after all, she broke the marriage covenant first, like something. Hmm. But we, we don't get any of that interior life with Charles. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we do except at the very beginning. Yes. Right. Which sort of mirrors what's happening at the very beginning of the book when he's in the forest with the army and all that. Or the field mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay, well, let's finish this passage here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'll pick oh, it yeah, up. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, the twin beds. We got, we got off on that. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I looked at my watch. It was four o'clock, but neither of us was ready to sleep. For in that city there is neurosis in the air, which the inhabitants mistake for energy. I don't believe you changed at all, Charles. No, I'm afraid not. Do you want to change? It's the only evidence of life. But you might change so that you didn't love me anymore. There is that risk. Charles, you haven't stopped loving me? You said yourself I hadn't changed. Well, I'm beginning to think you have. I haven't. No. No, I can see that. Were you at all frightened at meeting me today? Not the least. You didn't wonder if I should have fallen in love with someone else in the meantime? No. Have you? You know I haven't. Have you? No, I'm not in love. This is... (laughs) I know, what a line. The whole... There's so much going on in every, every phrase there. I mean, even the idea... Once you read the chapter and you know more about what's going on, the line, were you at all frightened at meeting me today, takes on... Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. It takes on new meaning. You know, if there's been, if there was conflict and he left, is he, you know, is he frightened at coming back? She right. had, there's the sense that she was anxious about it. Um, you said yourself, I hadn't changed. Uh, or she says, um, she's, he says, um, 
Well, she says, I'm beginning to think you have. I haven't. And she's talking about change. And he says, no, no, I can see that. And it's like he, he's realizing that maybe she's not as different. Maybe she hadn't changed enough to where whatever she did previously wouldn't happen again or something like that. And he does not answer any direct question about whether or not he has affection for her. I mean, he kind of glancingly addresses it, but nah. so she says, um, but you might change so that you didn't love me anymore. There is that risk. Charles, have you stopped loving me? You said yourself I hadn't changed. Those are all a bunch of non-answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's he's ducking. Which, if when they parted, they had had some terrible fight about her unfaithfulness, that's a lot more sympathetic, his non-answers. Right, but when, yeah. you, read it the, when you read it the first time... The, right, exactly. He, it just, Charles, if nothing else, up. it's weird. But is Wall again telling us something about perspective by messing with our own perspectives? You know, we think we have all the facts. We're making judgments. Then later on, we find out we were missing a very important fact and it changes everything. And we everything. have to reevaluate. You know what I wonder, Angelina, you and I have talked about how, like, the first read of this book was not, well, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But for me, I enjoyed the book, but it didn't grab me the way it's grabbing me now. Oh, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And I wonder if this is part of the reason why. because the first time you're reading it through you kind of form these opinions and then Waugh forces you to, to editorialize or he, he forces you to play the tape back and reformulate those opinions that you formed during the first read. So the second read is much, much better because you have a sense of like who the characters are and you don't have to play the tape back as it's not such a drastic reevaluation. Well, a great book always uh, repays a reread, right? Yeah. And this also one... might have to do with reading it and like, talking about it with people and stuff like that. Well, I also think it's my age. You know, I'm, I'm reading it now closer to the age of Charles having written it. Well, I think when I read it when I was younger, uh, I still saw life as way too black and white and would not have understood the difference that time and perspectives make. and. Mm. There's just I just didn't have the maturity to grasp it like I'm like I am now. I feel like it's so true to life and what it's saying. Hmm. Yeah. Did, did you guys feel that this was the saddest chapter yet? I'll just change it. This was the saddest chapter yet for me. This was a brutally sad chapter. In what way? I I just feel like Charles is. He is he has arrived in a full on depression. I mean, he kind of has all the things that he that a person would superficially want in life: a wife, kids, a career. He's wealthy, and he is. He it seems to me like he has nothing to live for except for painting the next architectural digest illustration. There is a, there is certainly a sense of melancholy in it. It reminds me a lot of um, Walker Percy's The Movie Goer for some reason. Mm. There's like a, a malaise, kind yeah. of. Yeah. There, and there's lots of references to like um, smoke and shadows and stuff like that, which yeah. the boat, the boat helps with. Yes, the storm, and then Julia's own sadness. 
Uh huh. And the the idea that that sadness contributed to her beauty, which I think mm. fits thematically. I mean, it's pretty interesting, right? That the chapter that begins the section of the book called was it a twitch in the thread? Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is the idea that God's let him wander as far as he will, and now he's going to yank him back. So that story begins with adultery. That's not where mm. you would put that moment, right? That's really mm. interesting. Mm. It made me think of a quote, and huh. I cannot remember who saw it, but I saw there was a quote on Facebook, and I can't remember who said it. Um, but it was something to the effect of um, you you have to pursue the false love so that when the false love ends, the true love can come can come in. This idea that um, you know false false idols have to be exposed, right? Before you can see the real thing. Um, and I don't know that I'm making a very good connection here to, to what's happening with, with Julia, but clearly if the if the narrative has turned and was telling us, now this is part two, this is the story of his conversion, yeah. and it's going to start in this moment, then there's going to be something about this relationship with Julia that's going to point him to the greater love. At least that's the way I'm reading it. I don't remember right. how the book ends, but I, I feel like thematically that's what he's done. Huh. Which isn't. I mean, it's not like a justification of adultery. I feel like I'm gonna get hate mail for this, but just thematically. No, no, <laughs> right, no, right, yeah. Just thematically. That's what that's what you're saying. And and okay, yeah. Well, I de- I think yeah. When you phrase it that way, that like rediscovering Julia and entering uh-huh. into a relationship with her, at least is the, if it's not the moment when the twitch is pulled on the thread, so to speak, when the thread is twitched, then. It is certainly the inciting action that that leads to that. Because pull. she is not, she is not the embodiment of that kind of um, the Catholicism, the fulfillment of spiritual wanting that Charles has. She's not that. She no. looks back at her own religious upbringing with kind of slanted eyes, and yet, and yet, she exactly. wants it for her daughter. Yes, she's haunted by it, right? That yeah. line that I, I damnation and hell, all of it, I can't, I can't escape it. It's there, and I wanted to give it to my child. Which is that's a fascinating thing that I have actually seen uh, in life with people, um, people who are not believers but who yet can't shake their baptism, if you know what I mean. Like, I've, and I've seen it especially with people who have come out of the Roman Catholic Church that. Um, you know, I, I've I've met plenty of adults who are rational, modernist, materialists who will tell you the idea of the resurrection of Christ, you know, the literal resurrection of Christ is absurd. That's an absurdity. And yet at the same time will tell you, but I can't I can't shake it. I can't uh-huh, shake it. Uh-huh. And I always feel like it's your baptism. You can't shake your baptism. Yeah. I've I mean, there's something real. Yeah, there's something real that happens when you're baptized and you're set apart. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if you grow up and say this is all a bunch of bunk, I want nothing to do with it. Those people still struggle because yeah. they they're marked by God. They they struggle to shake that off. Hmm. There's something that keeps calling them back. I think that's fascinating. And that, of course, just from the perspective of the story, her, her comments about Catholicism bring it back into focus f- for the book. Yes. Right. And then they bring exactly. it back. You know, I imagine he hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about it, although. There is the point when he does say that well, he's, he, heard, he heard Cordelia's line in Guatemala or something, right? Right, right. Cuomodo said at sola civitas. He, yeah, sung by a half-caste choir in Guatemala, which we talked about in a previous episode with my dad. Um, I looked that up. 
again, and apparently that's also uh, a reference to the Latin translation of the opening lines of the book of Jeremiah. Did you guys look that up? Oh, no, I did not. Um, try, what page are we on, David? That's on two, the 237. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How doth the city sit that was full of people? It's kind of the, it's the opening stanza of Jeremiah describing kind of like, I think, if I'm not mistaken, kind of the glorious uh, wealth of Jerusalem, um, how it's teeming with life and riches, and Jeremiah is about to set, set the boom down. Hmm. That's very interesting. You know, and I also think from a, from a metaphorical perspective, um, Charles's wife is modern. She's a modern woman. He goes, Wall goes to great lengths to give us all these details about how modern she is. Uh, so that's part of the reason why he's going to be empty. The, the, it, it's like Julian and Rex, right? She was there to advance his career. I mean, that line that she wore modern jewelry made at great expense to give the impression at a distance of having been mass produced. Hmm. What a line. Like, so everything about her is deliberate to, to, to be modern and generic, which is, of course, we, we, we know from earlier chapters is the opposite of what Julia is. That no matter how hard Julia tries, she can never seem mass produced. But a lot of people see Celia, think, think of her as she's more beautiful than Julia. Right. To like a lot of the people around. I don't, exactly. know if, I don't know if the idea is they're like an untrained eye or something, if that's, if that's the idea that they're going for there. Well, I, I think part of what's going on in this chapter is Charles is seeing the essence of Julia. He talks about seeing her sadness and that that's yeah. beautiful. and makes, it, makes her more beautiful. I mean, that's not, that's not the kind of beauty that catches people's eye at a cocktail party. Yeah, there's a subtlety to her beauty, whereas Celia seems to be just more on the surface. She lacks that subtlety. And like Rex, she can navigate, man. Like, you know, she's, she's always going to be the one in the know who's getting the free room and the free yeah. party and this connection and that connection. Like, she's a lot like Rex. Yeah. Yeah. And she's cheating. She's got guys on the side like Rex had um, with, with women. And yeah, so. And what does it mean that, that Waugh is setting up kind of like his two – now primary characters with people that are so much of that, of that modernist bent. What does it mean? Why is Waugh doing that? What are they seeking from Rex, from Celia? That, it, why are they seeking it when they seem to be so hostile against it in some level themselves? It doesn't even feel like Charles chose it as much as he fell into it. Yeah. And in some ways, that's, a good point. that's true of Julia too, because in some ways she was desperate, you know. Yes, and, right. she, and he Catholic lavished attention had on her. her. Options, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. They they sort of stumbled into it. Almost gravity took them into it, and to make hmm. another choice would be to act against gravity. Hmm. And sometimes in modernity, it just it just feels like there's no other choice to make. Hmm. It's it's the water we're all swimming in. Is that what you mean, Angelina? Right, right. And, and when you're in it, you know, like I can well imagine Charles thinking to himself, eh, why not Celia? 
Yeah. Yeah. No. What else? What else? I mean, if, if I want to get married and have children, why not Celia? It's not like I'm going to hold out and there's going to be this medieval woman that's going to show up, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and Julia kind of has this why not Rex? Actually, yeah. She's got a right. checklist. He fits a lot of it. Yeah. And she actually loves him for a little bit of time. Yeah. You know? I can imagine that that Charles might have loved Celia for a while, just like she loved Rex, just like Julia loved Rex. I can see that, too. I mean, because someone with an artistic bent like Charles um, is, gosh, as I'm about to say this, is exactly like Julia and Rex. Like, there would be an attraction and a need for someone who can sort of take you under their wing and, and, uh, you know, I'm going to make something of these paintings. And then they do because the, you know, the really artistic type is just going to sit in their basement painting all the time and no one's ever going to see those paintings. Yes. (laughs) Actually reading a book about that kind of thing right now. And it was just talking about how that personality needs, she was, she's a psychologist and she's making the case that one is not better than the other. She's like, we desperately need each other. Otherwise the artist type would just sell implode, you know? We'd yeah. be so wrapped up in our own creativity. There has to be someone else to drag that out. And so I'm not necessarily saying that's the basis of a marriage, but you can see the attraction there that, right. that, that Charles needs her. Hmm. Yeah. Positive and negative charge, charges attract. Right. She, he, she's giving his life some, some shape and structure, which uh-huh. he didn't have, in the same uh-huh. way that Julia thinks Rex will. So then what is the attraction for Julia and Charles to each other? That's a good question. And, and well, it, happens, it happens quickly, too, because it's not like there was that, that sort of interest no, there, there was, 10 years earlier. No, there was no like sexual tension between them earlier. It, it, in fact, it, it, it seems so unexpected to me when Charles just decides to make his move. You know, like, wait, shouldn't there be some buildup to this? <laughs> <laughs> need, need some flirty banter or something. But, um, but there seems to be a deep understanding between the two of them. A lot of unspoken things, right? Is it, is so, it yeah. lo- driven by loneliness? I don't think it's just loneliness because I, I think that both of them have sort of reached the bankruptcy of their choice for spouses, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 then the exact opposite of that is is an appearance, and they're they're drawn to each other. But there's mm-hmm. also the element of the past, which can't be discounted, and it's very very strong in relationships because when when you grasp at someone from your past, I mean, they represent so much more than just themselves. You know, if that is the happy memory of Charles's life, which it obviously was, he talks about that a lot, right? Yeah. I didn't have my artist, my best art was back then when I had the inspiration and I haven't been happy since Sebastian. And so that represents a happy time in his life. Then Julia is going to represent all of that. It's it's an attempt to, to grasp back that happiness. And how interesting that all of his, that his kind of like signal moment as a budding artist is the painting of the house. Right. The, right, that you know, sets him on his, his life's work. Right, and he's kind of, in some ways, he, he's still kind of fueled by that. I mean, he's an architectural painter. And, and right. the architecture of the Marchmade House is sort of like the signal of that which he was grasping for, and he's continuing to paint it, albeit in different forms, Yes. And it's super significant, though, that he's painting houses that are about to be destroyed. And he says, my presence there was the death knoll. Now, that says something so much about where Charles is in terms of the culture, right? He's holding on to this past. He's the preserver of the past at the same time that his presence means it's dead. Yeah. 
He's not the person who revives the past. He just preserves it. Hmm. So, yeah, the, 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 I mean, and he's deliberately unfashionable in his painting, he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This book is, well, it's a very clever I know, man. right? Like, we could talk hmm. for hours about just one paragraph. There's just yeah. so many, so, so many good things happening. Um, what the? I've wondered why he is not more, why this book is not read more often. I mean, I think outside of Circe, none of my literature friends just, you know, bubble about Brideshead Revisited. And I've wondered why. And I, my hunch is that it is such a, it is almost a book without plot. It's just relational events, which is not, which is, I mean, oftentimes the sum total of the plot of our lives is relational events, but as compared with other really fine writers, there's that sense of dramatic tension created through events of clashing. In yeah. Novels. I mean, there's, there's no, just, there's, there's no river to travel down or villain to overcome yeah. or, I mean, except maybe metaphorically within each character and in the relationships, but you know, there's no actual river to, to go down or battle to fight or, or whatever. Yeah, there's not. And it's really not even the story of like wooing, you know, like it's not a roman- romantic no. story. It's not right. like Pride and Prejudice or something where it's this story of, you know, where you kind of always, you feel like one's wooing the other for like this long amount of time and there's this resistance and then eventually they get together. It Like this happened no. and well, this is one chapter. It's like three paragraphs. Totally yeah. anticlimactic too. Like he's yeah. not doing that thing that, that writers do where they sort of slowly suck you into the courtship. Mm-hmm. Right, and you're rooting for this couple, and then you feel a sense of satisfaction when they finally get together, like in Pride and Prejudice. I mean, for a book that's got this many marriages and relationships happening, they're like all almost all off stage and yeah, matter of fact. And okay, okay, well now now we're lovers. Yeah, just like what? <laughs> just like and and now I'm married, and now this one's dead, and it's just, although although he does uh, he does attribute a great deal more symbolic significance to his relationship with Julia than we than we've seen and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that line on on two sixty one, mm-hmm. and it seemed now in assuaging that fierce appetite, cast a burden which I had borne all my life, toiled under, not knowing its nature. Now, while the wave still broke and thundered on the prow, the act of possession was a symbol, a rite of ancient origin and solemn meaning. Now, contrast that to Celia's comment earlier that modernity doesn't like symbols. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Charles, Charles is all about that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And he, he even get that with when he's talking about um, the architecture earlier in the chapter where he saw people as not as interesting as the buildings. And the, the buildings yes. were almost rep- just represented the people or whatever. They were almost symbolic of, of people. They'd... And how the buildings change over time mm-hmm. and become improved upon. That was all very, very metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ugly parts get kind of, you know, the ugly modern parts, the additions over time, they get kind of fixed. And uh, whatever problems were at the foundation at the beginning a long time ago, they get fixed over time. And I want to go back to this idea, though, of why Julia and Charles connect and connect so deeply. Because um, it's not like, I mean, it's not like they just like get really drunk and 
have a one night stand or something. Oh I mean, no, there's, there's a choice going on, right? right? She says not now, and then she says okay now. And then he says, she says, I don't know if I want love, and he says, I'm not looking for love, and she says, Oh yes, you oh are. yes, you are. Yes, you are. And then there's the line where they're sitting on the deck for that whole day or whatever on 260, and she says, and he says, it says once I said, you're standing guard over your sadness. And then she says, it's all I've earned, you said yesterday, my wages. And then he says, an IOU from life, a promise to pay on demand. Like, there's, they understand each other, certainly, and they see into each other. Mm. They recognize something in each other. And they've apparently had days and days of conversations, which again right. are off stage. Right. We don't know them. Right. But there's there's something deep going on here where they have just, you know, they're bearing each other's souls to one another. And in a sense, I appreciate that given that this is a sequence of memories, I appreciate that Wa doesn't pretend that 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 Ryder would remember everything. He gives us snippets of conversations and think about like those those you know, those important conversations or moments in our lives. We don't remember every conversation over the course of three days. Or the, over the course of a relationship developing or blossoming or whatever. But we do remember certain conversations. And those, right. he gives us bits and pieces here and there. And he doesn't even give them, us, give them to us in like some sort of sequence. He just says, once I said. And he gives us three lines of the conversation. And then later on, someone else will have said something. So why doesn't pretend that the that, that writer remembers everything? But he, he gives it to us as someone would actually remember things. If that makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I got to say, though, that line of Julia, when he says, I'm not looking for love, and she says, oh, yes, you are. That was like the first non-realistic thing I thought of in the book. Like, I, I just thought, I'm going to go on a limb here. In the same situation, I would have thought that, but I would not have said it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think she would have actually said it. But for the purposes of the book, it was good. <laughs> now, all the women can tell me I'm but, totally wrong. That's really interesting, Angelina. I David, I kind of want to dwell on that for a second. You think yeah. that Waugh, you you don't think that um, Julia's character would have said that? Or you kind of think, like, I'm suspicious that any woman would say that? I'm suspicious that any woman would say that. Because? I think sometimes in movies and stories, women are portrayed as being a lot more forthright. Mm. than they really are like um maybe that's not the best like in movies it's a standard plot line that a less than stellar candidate approaches a girl and asks her to the prom right and how does that play out in a movie always in some humiliating horrible yeah. you know go jump in a lake i would never give you the time of day kind of moment but most women i know would feel so terrible. Would feel like that was an awkward thing. Most women I know hate having to say no, hate having to turn a guy down. It's a total awkward thing, and you end up so much trying not to hurt their feelings that they think you're interested, and it's just way more complicated. I just don't think that interactions between men and women are, are quite that cut and dry. So yeah. Yeah. I was shocked when she was like, no, of course you're, of course that's what you are. Of course, of course you're looking for love. I thought, oh, wow, how did, how did she know that? <laughs> I can't but believe she said that. <laughs> well, but maybe you're right, this David. Moment maybe is, she's got this special insight into him. Well, I mean, I think it's because, I mean, she says earlier she doesn't. I, okay, so what happens is, I, she says earlier, I don't know if I want love or whatever. Mm. And then it's, it's in like the same conversation, yeah. Uh, I think she says something about it earlier too, doesn't she? Oh, does she? Earlier in the book, or something, maybe it's earlier in the book. I don't know. Where I thought she said something like, she was unsure if. Eh, I can't remember. 
I mean, I know, I know that, um, Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering something differently, but there is it. This is a big turning point for him. Like if you read between the conversations, because she says, "No, Charles, not yet. Perhaps never. I don't know. I don't know if I want love." And then the narrator gives us, well, Charles gives us, then something, some surviving ghost from those dead ten years. For one cannot die even for a little without some loss. Made me say, "Love, I'm not asking for love." And then, oh yes, Charles, you are, she said, and putting up her hand gently stroked my cheek, then shut her door. And then you get this, and I reeled back, first on one wall, then on the other of the long, Mm. softly lighted empty corridor, for the storm, it appeared, had the form of a ring. All day we'd been sailing through its still center. Now we we were once more in the full fury of the wind, and that night was to be rougher than the one before. So yeah, he's reeling because there's a storm there, like that's the actual narrative reason. But then that is representative of something yes. richer here that right, she, reve- she reveals to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, we need to talk about that in a minute. She reveals to him something about himself or confirms something that he was trying to avoid in himself. I think like maybe yeah. he, maybe he says, I don't want love. And he's trying to convince himself that that is not true. But when she brings it to him and says, no, that it is true that you want love, then he has to face that. And in facing that, it makes him reel back. Like it's, it's, it's traumatic in a sense. It's something you have to reckon right. with. I agree. Okay, let's talk. I also Go I ahead. took her line also to be sort of a um, a preemptive strike of self defense. Sure. You know, like she she had to say it to him because she knew she knew what the stakes were, and she had to kind of hold him off for a second. Anyway. Okay, well, we can go for that, because then that would also be her way of saying, that's what I want, and if this happens, that's what it's going to be. It's going yes. to be love. Yeah. This isn't going to be a fling on a ship. Right. If this gets I... started, these are the terms. So mm-hmm. that now that, a passive-aggressive way of introducing the terms, that makes sense to me. A woman mm-hmm. would do that. People are going to literally hunt me down and beat me in Austin for the things that I say. <laughs> Why? Why? I don't know. I feel hey, like oh, if they I want can't handle you your keen insights, <laughs> that's on them. <laughs> hmm. This is this is interesting. But because uh, she has framed the conversation in that way, when it does happen, then we we the reader think this is love. This is well, you know, this is uh, an attempt at love. Yeah, I mean that's. That's another conversation for another day. Exactly. Yeah, I feel I'll put a can of worms on that one. But There's in their of... minds, in their this is what they are grasping after. Yeah. Well, it it sets up, it takes the stakes to, to a different level. Like the, if you're yeah. if it's if you're going to enter into the relationship, then you have to make the attempt to to kind of learn to love each other or something. Um. I we could talk about your reading of that for a while. Um. And I gotta think about it. I don't think I buy exactly what you guys are saying there. I mean, like maybe the preemptive preemptive strike thing is part of it, but I think I don't know. I think I think she's just revealing to himself to him. Oh, I'm okay with that reading. I mean, I'm uh, okay with books, people acting very metaphorical and, you know, her just having special insight to him and she calls it and that changes him. I just... 
I, I mean, like if, that doesn't so happen in what, real life a lot. what would a person in real life say if he says, love, I'm not asking for love? Well, wouldn't she be embarrassed because she said love and he's like, it's not love? Huh. Well, but then, she, okay, but if if she's the kind of person who is at that point in her life where, yeah, she's going to be embarrassed about that. I think the fact that she doesn't get embarrassed about that tells us a lot about her and about what she is, how she is dictating the terms. Okay, yeah. Which is kind of what Tim was getting at. So she's not how she was in the courtship with Rex. Right, right. And I think, and you know, I hope, you know, I'm guessing they both learned something about how they should be in a relationship. Okay, now, so then that would mean that they're both being more active and previously have been very passive. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about at all is really like, and I don't think that this is that chapter for it, we could talk a decent bit about, like, sh- just the should they, should they not portion of this chapter, like the morality portion of it. Right. And I think we need to let that lie for listeners who are waiting for us to talk about that. I think that needs to let be let, let, we need to let that sit and marinate for a bit until we get to future chapters where mm-hmm. you get more into the repercussions and that, that actually becomes part of the book. Um, so we're not going to talk about that today, but we do, Tim needs to go here in a second. Um, and we do need to talk about this King Lear thing. So let's conclude with this, that King Lear thing. Angelina, you said that's why we get these references to King Lear. Can you, on, on two forty eight, Julia and Celia and Charles are sitting in, uh, their, their cabin, and, or no, they're sitting at tables together, and Julia says, like King Lear, um, and then he says, only each of us is all three of them, and then Celia says, what can you mean? And then he says, Lent, Lear, Kent, fool. And then she says, huh. don't try to, this is like that agonizing conversation from previously, don't try and explain. And then he says, I doubt if I could. And then that just ends there. And there's another reference to it. But Angelina, can you kind of explain that Lear reference there and what you think it might mean and what those well, three parts are? I, I might let Tim take that. I, what I'd like to talk about is the storm, which is a motif in, in, in King Lear. And so just as, as quickly and concisely as I can say that it, with Shakespeare's Elizabethan cosmology, everything is connected. Everything is very ordered. And so if there is disorder in a person, that is going to be reflected in, in the play with disorder in nature. And so over and over, anytime there's a storm in Shakespeare, that reflects the internal storm and chaos and disorder of the characters. So King Lear is disordered as a father. He's disordered, right? He doesn't have his house mm-hmm. in order, his daughters and everything. As a king, he's disordered. And so the land is disordered. So you have that whole theme of the storm pervading the, the whole way through. That's in lots and lots of Shakespeare plays, Macbeth, and on and on and on. Um, so that that's what I was referencing, the idea that the backdrop of this is the storm. But it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the storm inside Julian Charles. And you see the different ways that people respond to it, right? So Charles's wife is hidden away. She's just going to medicate and ride this out and then have a beauty appointment afterwards. And Charles and Julia are just – they're going to go right out into the storm, yeah, this is an occasion yeah. for them to become close and get to know each other. And the storm is crazy. It's knocking people around. It's breaking bones. It's, it's Shakespearean. Well, and, and ultimately, literally, literally, the storm brings them together. Yes. Like yes. it slams them. It literally it slams them into each other. That's right. But that's it, what metaphorically is happening. The, this force, you know, the universe, their emotions, their longing, their feelings, it's slamming them right into each other. What I, what's so interesting about the reference to Lear for me is these three characters, mm-hmm. Lear, 
Kent, who's kind of his soldier servant advisor and the fool, they all get thrown out in the middle of this storm upon the blasted heath. And it's the moment of Mm -hmm. Lear's greatest rage against his circumstances. And he says, there are these wonderful famous lines. He's screaming at the sky, blow winds, crack your cheeks, you cataracts and hurricanoes spout. And it's, it's always kind of framed as it's a protest against God's ordering of things because Lear cannot accept that he is no longer the king and he is enraged at God and at nature for not like basically allowing him to keep his position. And so I wonder if that's, if we're going to see something like that in Charles, Charles does is not enraged at God the way that Lear is. But I wonder if this is Waugh signaling to us that this is the kind of cleansing moment for Charles. This storm is the cleansing moment because after the storm mm-hmm. in Lear, Lear makes peace that he is kind of an ant in the cosmic order of things. And we see him kind of returning to his senses. He returns his affection for Cordelia. And I wonder if was like conveying the same thing through the well, storm. Well, it's very significant see. that the storm ends. Right? The chapter doesn't end with them in the storm. The storm ends. The sun comes out. Mm-hmm, the clouds part. And that usually means order has been restored. And this happens after the consummation of Julia and Charles's relationship. Yeah. So that's that's just that's very interesting. Yeah. And, and I don't know yet what to make of it. We have to see what happens in other chapters. But whatever the, whatever was pushing them together has resolved. In terms of the metaphor, because right. the storm the storm has subsided and the sun comes out. Right. It, it seems as if the universe of the novel is preparing us to accept to to judge their you know their dalliance as a positive thing. Like that's what it seems like the book is preparing uh-huh. us. Uh-huh. Yes. To, yes. To yes. feel, and this is that's why I didn't want to talk about whether or not. Like I don't want to talk about the morality of it. I think. I mean, I think we would all agree that you know, adultery is a problem. Um, so I don't, I want to talk about that because it, the book is going to talk about it for us and we're going to have right. to, we're going to have to look yeah. at it from the book's perspective. Right. right. So, Absolutely. Um, so for those of you who are like, why are they not judging Charles and, and, uh, Julia? I mean, let's, let's let the book judge for us and, we, and we'll talk about that and, um, and, and we'll see where, how, how, how things actually turn out. Right. Um, I mean, this is a conversion story, so you can, you know, feel pretty confident. I don't remember how it ends, but I feel pretty confident Wall is going to take this up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and most likely, it's going to be taken up not by Wah himself or Charles himself, but by, right. well, maybe Charles, but by characters within the book. It's not going to be Wah telling us they were right or wrong. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be... Consequences. Yeah, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be internal struggle. There's going to be spiritual crises, all this kind of stuff. It's going to yeah. lead, lead to a lead to a judgment of their behavior and of their relationship. But I, I think I, I think it's worth saying this, and I might get some flack for this, but I think that Wall has set it up that we are supposed to look at Julia's marriage and Charles's marriage as essentially being dead. Mm-hmm. Julia's for sure is dead, and, and Charles doesn't have much of a marriage here either. I mean, he, 
doesn't even want to go see his kids, which may or may not even be his kids. And um, one thing that I think is worth pointing out about, about both their marriages is the lack of tradition. The lack of traditions that were tied to the actual marriages themselves, like yeah. the ceremonies. Like her yeah. ceremony doesn't have any of the the, the church stuff, right? Yes, very it, interesting. It like distances itself from the um the sacramental nature of marriage, right? In the very yes. the very way they get married. Like wa I'm not like saying people who don't get married in churches it's a problem, but wa metaphorically, poetically yes, is distancing right. is itself. Fitting in with this idea, right, about loss of tradition and what happens. And and we don't know a lot about his marriage to Celia, Charles's marriage to Celia, but it certainly is, you know, she asks him, like there's all these different things that are counter yes. to the traditions. Um and of course, we know a lot about him, and so therefore, probably there was a little bit. There, there probably was not a high emphasis on the sacramental nature of their marriage, you know. Um, no, and and then uh, again, the Celia Rex thing is that she messes up the born he likes, in an, in an effort to be utilitarian and helpful to his career. But you well, can paint and, there, and his thought was, "I'm going to miss the smell. It's not going to yeah, smell right anymore." And it's in an effort to apologize to him, in a sense, too. It's like she's trying yes. to make peace, and then she just ruins. She almost ruins it more. Right, but it, t- it totally reminded me of Rex saying, "Yeah, they're going to turn tear down Brideshead, but we'll get a penthouse apartment." Yeah, yeah, in the same spot. It'll be, it'll be, it'll awesome. be fine. Yeah. So yeah, they are definitely cut from from the same cloth, and mm-hmm. and honestly, this is. I mean, I'm I'm a medievalist. I, you know, everybody knows I'm reading everything metaphorical all the time. But I, I just feel like there's such a danger when you don't read books metaphorically, when you don't say what is what universe has the author created, what are the rules of this universe, yeah. what is he trying to say? Because these are not sermons. A novel is not a sermon, and if you're looking for that, you're you're not going to find it, and you're going to be all confused and mad at authors you, you shouldn't be. I mean, this is a Christian author trying to tell us a Christian story, and we have to accept the rules he sets for it while yeah. we read the book. That's not to say that mm-hmm. afterwards we can't say he was wrong, but while we're in the book, we can't be fighting with him about the rules of his universe. You have to let exactly. them create the universe they want to create. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, Tim's got to go. Tim, what do you have to do? I mean, come oh on. Oh my goodness. You're going to go read ESPN or like something. I don't know. Like <laughs> yeah. go, go play a video game. I wish. Uh, <laughs> Classic <Yeah>. Tim. <laughs> Just playing. Tim, what are you flying into Austin? Maybe I should ask that off the air. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're going to have like a whole pe- bunch of people just showing up at the airport. Like, <laughs> we not make right. dinner plans here on the air. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> well, guys, I'm taking an overnight flight from the West Coast oof. to Austin. I leave it like, oh, I think I leave San Francisco around 1030. And I think I get into Austin, I don't know, sometime. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that sounds delightful. Yeah, doesn't it? So, well, tell the fans that the three of us are going to meet at the Taco Bell on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, David would drop dead before he'd set foot in a Taco Bell. That's Me? a joke. <laughs> oh, no, I eat Taco Bell, man. I, I'm, a food, I'm a food snob, but I also have a bit of a, um, a, bit of a love of fast food, so... Wow, this I did not know. I only know David the food snob. Oh, I mean, when we travel and go to conferences, I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of, you know, pre-conference research, but, you know... In between conferences, I eat way too much fast food. People need to know that you're better than a restaurant app. I just asked David where to go, and, like, you give me the rundown and people's specialties and where the chef trained. (laughs) Now that I've said that, everyone at the conference is going to come up to you and say, where should I go to dinner? And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull up an app. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just pull up a, like, Food and Wine or Bon Appetit magazine or something like that. Well, 
Angelina and Tim, thanks so much for another great episode. Tim, I know you got to go, so uh, you know, head off whenever you need to. But, of course, uh, thanks to Scola Academy from Classical Academic Press for sponsoring Close Reads this summer. Um, really great to be partnering with them. And uh, check out Tim's classes at scolaacademy.com. You can just click that picture of him there on the front page, and you should be taken to where you need to get to get more information on that. We'd love to have your kids in the class. It will be... <clears throat> There'll be, there'll be a lot of fun. They will learn by accident. It will be so much fun. <laughs> by accident. Well, there's going to be another episode of Close Reads before you see us in, uh, in, uh, in Austin. In fact, there might be one that'll be perfect for your travel days next week. That'll they'll go up Monday or Tuesday of next week. Um, but we do hope that for those of you who are traveling, your travel is a little bit more peaceful and a little less stormy than what we read about today for the show. <laughs> I definitely um, did not want to book a cruise after reading this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening. If you would, head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Leave us a review of whatever sort you prefer. Starred, comment, whatever. We, we really appreciate that. Um, and as always, join the conversation over on the Facebook group and leave your comments, leave your criticisms. We read almost all of them and comment on some of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, the conversations over there has been awesome. So thanks for participating. And uh, I guess that's it for Tim McIntosh and for Angelina Stanford and for all of the martyrs here at Cersei. <laughs> uh, I'm David <laughs> the Kern. Distinguished yeah, the distinguished martyrs of art uh, here at Cersei. I'm David Kern saying farewell and close reads. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 